came across a story as I was preparing for the message this morning. It's about a professor of psychology. Although he had no children of his own, whenever he saw a neighbor scolding a child for some wrongdoing, he would say, you should love your boy and not punish him. One hot summer afternoon, the professor was doing some repair work on a concrete driveway leading to his garage. Tired out after several hours of work, he laid down the, the trowel, wiped perspiration from his forehead, and started toward the house. Just then, out of the corner of his eye, he saw a mischievous little boy putting his foot into his fresh cement. He rushed over, grabbed him, was about to spank him severely, when a neighbor leaned out the window and said, Watch it, professor. Don't you remember? He'd love that boy. At this, he said back very furiously, I do love him in the abstract, but not in the concrete. <laughs> now that I made an enemy of y'all with that joke, let's talk about loving your enemies. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 18. We've just uh, encountered the story of David and Goliath, the, the great victory that God brought uh, David uh, in that moment. And we're seeing now the, the ramifications of David's anointing uh, as he begins to interact, continues to interact with Saul. Beginning in verse 1, it says, When David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan was bound to David in close friendship and loved him as much as he loved himself. Saul kept David with him from that day on and did not let him return to his father's house. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. Then Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. David marched out with the army and was successful in everything Saul sent him to do. Saul put him in command of the fighting men and was pleased which pleased all the people and Saul's servants as well. As the troops were coming back, when David was returning from killing the Philistine, the women came out in all the cities of Israel to meet King Saul, singing and dancing with tambourines, with shouts of joy, and with three-stringed instruments. And they danced. The women sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Saul was furious and resented the song. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have can he have but the kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. The next day an evil spirit sent from God came powerfully on Saul, and he began to rave inside the palace. David was playing the lyre as usual, but Saul was holding a spear, and he threw it, thinking, I'll pin David to the wall. But David got away from him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but it left Saul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for the comfort that it often offers us. But God, we're, we're also thankful for the challenges that it puts forward. A challenge to love those who hate us to respond to those who are against us with compassion, with forgiveness, with love. God, we pray that as we look at this passage today, 
look at what your word has to say about this very important reality that you would help us to be doers of the word and not just hearers only to apply these truths to our lives we love you God we praise you in Christ's name passage makes it very clear that from this point forward, Saul and David were very much at odds. But if you go on and you read the remainder of 1 Samuel, what you discover over and over again is David's compassion, David's forgiveness, David's disposition towards Saul was not one of enmity. It was not one of attack. It was not one of trying to unseat him. Even though David was God's anointed for Israel at this point, he continued to protect and to preserve Saul's position, having a couple of opportunities to kill him, having opportunities to, to, uh, to despise him, to run him down, all those sorts of things. But we see over and over and over again, we see David responding to Saul with an attitude and a disposition that, if I'm being honest, is quite surprising to me. David loved his enemy. Years before Jesus would utter those all-important words, love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, David was already doing this. And I think as we look at this passage this morning, we see some truth about how we might be able to grow in that understanding is all as well. Because as I said, if, if I'm being honest, I, I struggle with this reality. I struggle with loving my enemies. I, 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 I'm driven toward, a push toward in myself, in my attitudes uh, toward revenge, toward one-upsmanship. You did this to me, I'll do this to you. I harbor resentment more often than I should. But God's word constantly, continuously reminds me, and His Spirit corrects me in those moments to move away from that. So what do we see in this passage that can help us? I think the first thing we see, just in general from the passage, is that we need to understand where our enemy is coming from. When people attack us, when 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 people um, give us a hard time when people hurt us in some way, one of the most important things we can begin to develop, one of the most important mindsets we can begin to process is to see them as more than that acts toward us. We see in this passage several things that motivated Saul. We see, first of all, we see jealousy. This is outlined for us very clearly in verses 7 through 9. That Saul watched David jealously. And, and sometimes we need to understand that that, that jealousy is, is not even rational, not even reasonable. We read that we read that passage that says the women saying, Saul killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And, and on the surface, it sounds like a comparison, but it's really not. This is what's called Hebrew parallelism, okay? Without going too much into the details of that, it, it's the basic form of Hebrew poetry. When, when, when the Hebrews 
wrote poems. They didn't rhyme like we did. That wasn't their their approach to poetry. They would write parallel sentences, stanzas. You see this throughout the Psalms, throughout the Proverbs, and in many places in the Prophets. They make a statement, then they repeat that statement. And they, in repeating that statement, sometimes they heighten the second stanza of it. Sometimes they give you the, the antithesis of it to, to kind of give you, you know, the, the emphasis such as a, a child listens to the instruction of his father and does not neglect the instruction of his mother. That's parallelism. That's how they think. That's how they talk. And that's all these women are doing. What they're essentially doing is they're saying the heroes of Israel have delivered us. The heroes of Israel have done great and mighty things. Saul is a hero of Israel. David is a hero of Israel. All our heroes are amazing. That's what the song means. That's all the song is uttering. But Saul hears it as a comparison. He's so driven by jealousy, he, he, he's irrational. He doesn't even recognize basic forms of speech in his culture. And a lot of times when we're dealing with people and they're, they're, they, they, they see some of the benefits or the blessings or the realities that are going on in our life, they attack us. They lash out at us. And it can be hard to see, it can be hard to understand where that's coming from. But we have to try. Another reality that drives people is, is fear. Verse 15, it says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. Was with David, but he had left Saul. Excuse me, verse 12 says that. That had to be a fearful thing for Saul. Knowing where he had been previously knowing the favor of God that he had enjoyed previously and now seeing it resting on somebody else. Where does that leave me? What does he ask? He has everything except the kingdom now. He's afraid. Put yourself in Saul's position for just a moment. Just a few years before, you were serving, not really doing much. And God comes out of nowhere and says, I'm going to make you king. You become king. You have your initial great battle recorded for us there in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Things seem to be going well. Things are prospering. They're moving in the right direction. And then they fall apart. Now, they fell apart because of his poor decisions, his sinful decisions, and his refusal to take responsibility for his actions. But nonetheless, from his perspective, he has lost everything he had gained. He was flying so high. He was doing so well. And now it's all gone. What does that leave him? His identity was wrapped up in his kingship. What's left? Not to mention the fact that his son now seems to favor this David guy even more than him. He's losing so much. And then pain. I think pain is probably one of the most prevalent reasons people make enemies of others. Because deep down they're feeling pain and 
that hurt expresses itself in hateful actions. It's all here in verse 10. We talked about this last week, the, the, the evil spirit, the harmful spirit that comes from God. It was a painful experience for him. When people hurt, they lash out. And it's important for us to, as believers to, to see that, to understand where they're coming from, to understand these motivations, to, to see them as more than just the action they carried out. I don't advocate understanding in order to create excuses, but instead to engender, to help us grow in our love, our, our recognition of what's going on there. Because love is, is very powerful. Love can transform. Martin Luther King Jr. famously wrote, We shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. He wasn't just looking for liberation for himself. He was looking for liberation of those who attacked and hurt him. And that needs to be our goal as well. Now, as I say this, I, I hope you, I know you realize that sometimes forgiveness doesn't bear its fruit the way we hope it will. Second Samuel says that David was 30 years old when he began to reign. He's a teenager when he fights Goliath. So we're talking about what? At least 10 years on the run. 10 years of Saul hating. 10 years of him trying time and time again to get through to Saul that I'm not your enemy. I'm not here to attack you. I'm not here to, to overthrow you. I had my chance, and I didn't, coming out of the, the cave at Endor and so forth. Ten years of that level of frustration. Many of you are familiar with the writings of Elizabeth Barrett Browning, famous poet. You may not be aware that she grew up under a very tyrannical father. When she and Robert were married, their wedding was held in secret because her father was not willing to let her get married. After the wedding, they moved to Italy where they lived for the rest of their lives. But even though her parents had disowned her, Elizabeth never gave up on the relationship. Almost weekly, she wrote them a letter. And not once did they reply. After 10 years of writing these letters weekly, she received a large box in the mail, and inside she found every letter, and not one of them had been opened. Today, those letters are among the most beautiful in classical English literature. You wonder what might have happened had her parents read just one. Though she reached out, it was not reciprocated. And sometimes though we reach out in forgiveness and love, it's not going to be reciprocated. People are not going to respond. People are not going to 
come back to the relationship. But we need to be driven by love. 1 John 4.18 says, Perfect love cast away fear. In order to have that love, we have to keep the right perspective. There's two types of perspectives, I think, that this passage and, and David kind of revealed to us and, and we need to understand as well. The first is we need to keep the right perspective of God. When reading through the Psalms of David, there are six Psalms. Psalm 34, Psalm 52, Psalm 54, Psalm 56, 59, and 142 that all purportedly took place during this time of David's life, when he's on the run from Saul, when he's being attacked by Saul. Let me just read just a, a sentence or two from each one of those psalms so that you can kind of see where David's coming from and how David's operating. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 52, 9. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. Psalm 54, 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of life. Psalm 56, 4. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Psalm 59, 16, and 17. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. And Psalm 142, 6. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. As David is dealing with Saul, part of his ability to respond appropriately was driven by his view of God. His knowledge of who God is, his knowledge of what God could do, his understanding of God's protection and God's preservation. We need to understand who our God is and that we can trust him in these times when people are turned against us. We also need to have a correct perspective of the grace that we have in Christ. English evangelist George Whitfield learned that it was more important to please God than to please men. Knowing that he was doing what was honoring to the Lord kept him from discouragement when he was falsely accused by his enemies. At one point in his ministry, Whitfield received a vicious letter accusing him of wrongdoing. His reply was brief and courteous. I thank you heartily for your letter, he said. As for what you and my other enemies are saying against me, I know worse things about myself than you will ever say about me. With love in Christ, George Whitfield. 
walking in God's grace, he knew, even though what that person may be saying about him wasn't true, worse things were. And yet Christ had forgiven him. Christ loved him. And because Christ loved him, he could love others. Returning to Martin Luther King, in his letters from prison, he gives us three instructions of how he was able to maintain his perspective of his enemies. Three things that he did, some of which are echoed in what we've already covered, but some go beyond that. Number one, develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. By understanding God's grace, by understanding what God has given to us, we can forgive others. Christ always connected those two things. Our forgiveness of others is always connected in Christ's words to God's forgiveness for us. Why? Because if we don't recognize God's forgiveness of us, we're not going to be able to forgive others. If we don't see how wretched and broken and, and how we are the enemy, and as we read earlier, that while we were still the enemy, Christ died for us. If we don't see that, we won't be able to see understand the capacity for others either. So we need to develop that capacity. Second, recognize that the evil of your enemy never quite expresses all that he or she is. What that person has done to you is not the totality of who they are. And when we can begin to recognize that and recognize there's more to that person than just what they did to us, then we have something to grab onto. We have something to reach out to. We have something to connect with. As a nerd from the 70s, I can't help but think of Star Wars. The whole redemption of Darth Vader by Luke. Why? Because Luke kept saying, I know there's more to him than this evil he can do. Third, we need to seek to win friendship rather than scoring points. Again, so often it's easy for us to Try and one-up somebody. Put them in their place. Give just the right cut down or the right response. But if our goal is, as we read earlier from MLK, to, to win them over, then we get a double victory. We are released from that enemy, and they are released from the hurt, the pain that they're feeling. Perspective is so important. And in order to gain that perspective, we, we need to lean into our resources. Our first resource is, of course, God himself. First Samuel 23.16 says that Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. And our triune God is fully capable of getting us through any difficulty. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who walks with us, who comforts us, who corrects us, who teaches us. We have the Son who said, what? Take on my yoke. 
Be bound to me. Be connected to me in your walk. I am with you always, even into the end of the age. And we have the Father who is sovereign, who controls and directs and guides us in our steps. He is an unlimited resource that we can lean into when it's difficult to love our enemies. Second, we we can lean into our godly friends. We need to seek what is best for everyone. It's interesting that Jonathan could have viewed David as a rival. Here's this young guy. He's coming up through the ranks. He could supplant me. Look how much everybody loves him. Jonathan could have seen that, could have held that perspective. Instead, he what? He he stopped the best for him. He gives him his cloaks. And and this is this is a, a narrative passage that, that is meant to reflect how the mantle of Saul's replacement is falling on David. When when Saul, when Jonathan gives David all this stuff, he's essentially saying, you are the prince now. You're the one in line. We need to find friends, godly friends, who are seeking the best for us. We need godly friends who will protect us. Returning to that passage in chapter 23, I said, Jonathan helped. David finds strength by saying, what? Don't be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. Friendship takes what is common in human experience and turns it into something holy. That's what a true friend does everyday experiences that we go through are elevated, expanded, intensified by a friend. I think we've all had those moments where we experienced something amazing and it was somewhat lessened because we looked around and there was no one there to share it with. Conversely, moments that were actually kind of mundane or simple that were greatly expanded and increased in their enjoyment because someone was there to make us laugh, to help us see it a little bit brighter, to see it more clearly. We need godly friendship. And then we need godly instruction. Jonathan constantly reminded David of God's promises. David constantly returned to the word, reflect upon it. What do we know about who God is from his word? We know that he deals with the things that cause hatred and division. He died on the cross for those things. We know that he promises to never leave us or forsake us. He's with us in every trial and every temptation and every struggle. We know that he promises that when we're tempted to respond 
in a way we shouldn't, that he will provide a way of escape. He's given us a means by which we can respond when the hatred starts to fill our own hearts, when the anger starts to take us over. And we know that he promises us strength when we're tired and weary, when our own resources are depleted. We don't know what to do. God provides for our needs. This morning, where are you standing as it pertains to your relationship with those around you? How are you responding to those people who treat you with contempt or dismiss you or sometimes actively seek your harm. Jesus would have us love our enemies. But he doesn't leave us to our own devices to be able to accomplish that. He is there with us. The battle of our hearts and minds in this particular endeavor begins, continues, and ends with surrender to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for each person here. God, I thank you for your word. I pray that it's spoken to our hearts. Lord, I pray that there's anyone here who you've laid on their hearts some response, some reality that is not what it should be. God, that you would draw them and they would respond. God, I also pray that there's someone here who's never given their life to you, never surrendered to you, never realized just how much of an enemy to you we all are, but that you still love us and you your son to die for us. God, I pray that you lay on their heart the need to respond, that they would surrender all that they are to you this morning. We love you, God. We praise you. We ask that you use this time for your purposes. In Christ's name.